0: Thank you very much to you, Lakshman, for coming on to this podcast. It's quite brave of you to like sit here facing four interpreters. Does it feel a little bit like going into the lion's den?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, yes and no. I've
2: not worked with interpreters as much. The reason I came in here is to try and understand the interpreter's perspective rather than a technology perspective, or a buyer perspective, or an end-user perspective. We have always been working in parallel with interpreting companies. They've, they've tried to see what we are doing, but uh, always quite cautious about whether we're going to eat up their market. When we have that kind of uh, situation where people are viewing us with certain doubt, then we're always very careful to tread. So this is, this is really good.
0: Welcome to The Troublesome Terps, the podcast about the things that keep interpreters up at night. Now, my name is Alexander Gansma, and with us today is the guy who literally wrote the book on machine interpreting versus interpreters, Dr. Jonathan
3: Downey. How are you? Thank you, Alex. I'm fine. I am 100% non robotic today, so I'm really pleased. And it's my pleasure to welcome the man without whom there would be no troublesome terps. He is like the drummer in a band, or maybe the bass guitarist. Oh, careful there. <laughs> he's like the the sound engineer at your favorite concert this is our favorite tech guy ever Alex Drexel
1: well thank you Jonathan I'll 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 take that but careful with the bassist jokes and stuff like that but you know they have a special reputation in musician circles but it's great to be here it's lovely to see you all
4: misunderstood yeah
1: totally misunderstood I know one person who's not misunderstood and that's uh, Sarah Hickey who's joining us once again from Ireland good evening how are
0: you
4: Thanks. Very nice introduction. Um, yeah, and our, our episode today is actually going to be particularly troublesome because we're going to address the big threat of machine interpreting. Uh, will the machines replace us? Uh, will we learn to coexist? And what does this potential future look like? Uh, JD is our in-house expert on the topic. And to really get into the weeds of it, we invited a very special guest, the CEO of Wordly, a machine interpreting solution. Welcome Lakshman Ratnam.
2: Thank you, Sarah, and thank you all for uh, inviting me to participate in this session. I'm excited. I'm looking forward to uh, discussing machine interpretation today.
4: Fantastic, it's great to have you. Um, Maybe we can kick this off um, with you telling us a little bit more about yourself first so we can get to know you a bit better.
2: I will keep it really short. Uh, I'm a technologist. Uh, i worked in the Silicon Valley for over 25 years, and I worked uh, at many companies and managed teams. I, had, uh, I, had, I managed teams globally as well, and while managing teams globally, I always had this problem of communicating with the, with the global teams as well. But my segue into machine interpretation came a little bit roundabout. I was working for a hearing aid company and I was helping uh, with the hearing impaired. And then I realized that hearing aids uh, catered only to a minority of the people that needed hearing assistance. And I, and I wanted to use machine interpretation or machine learning and artificial intelligence to provide them uh, with perhaps speech to text so that it, it could increase cognitive load for people who could not afford hearing aids or were so hard of hearing aids that hearing aids would not help them. And then I connected this to my past and said, if you spoke a foreign language to me, I can hear you, but I can't understand you. You know, so essentially that's what led me to looking into interpretation as a bigger market.
0: That's a really nice way of thinking about it.
2: And perhaps helping bring the world much closer
1: and it has such a different vibe these days doesn't it
2: yeah so that's what got me into this whole world of uh, interpretation and getting people uh, communicating across language barriers I, I had no background in language or interpretation or in that industry i'm more a technology person
4: a technology person who saw a problem he wanted to fix
3: that's right. <laughs> as technology people want to do. Yeah. The 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 really fascinating thing about Wordly seems to be that you're pushing into markets that a lot of current machine interpreting solutions aren't really looking for. Could you tell us a bit more about um, who's using Wordly and, and what they're using it for?
4: I'd say, sorry to interrupt there, but maybe we can start with, for our listeners as well, what Wordly is for us. Ah, that's maybe. a good idea, yeah. Yes. <laughs>
3: simply
2: put it allows any speaker to speak in their language of choice and allows any listener to listen in their language of choice if they have the if they have access to wordly so we use artificial intelligence and machine learning and help do interpretation through without any human interference i think that's the best way of putting it uh, for general consumption
4: Okay, thanks, okay, Jonathan. back to your question maybe
3: <laughs> yeah so so who's using wordly and what are they using it for?
4: As you can imagine, there's
2: so many use cases for uh interpretation and but ours is a new paradigm. Just having machine interpretation replace uh, uh where humans have service interpretation predominantly uh, so getting into a market is really quite difficult uh because it's a new paradigm, Uh, it needs people to accept it. However, having said that, we have overcome this a little bit and our early segments have been into conferences or big events where just scaling up for interpretation, human interpretation has been very expensive and a logistical nightmare. Uh, Having to provide sound boots, custom headsets, infrared uh, uh, transmitters and, At the end of the day, they're more concerned about retrieving their hardware rather than the experience that people get with interpretation. So we have found that to be a good market to validate our product. Uh, And what we're now seeing is that there's a general acceptance in the enterprise sector. And given the COVID situation, there are more people willing to uh, accept our solution or at least beginning to engage with us uh, because everything is virtual and scaling for virtual platforms with human interpreters seems to be an issue just in general uh, with the availability of human interpreters.
3: Okay. And I think market
2: will dictate that.
3: Yeah. The market dictates everything nowadays. Exactly. Could, could you explain a bit on how it works? Because I know for practicing interpreters, they look at machine interpreting, and it just seems like a magic box. Uh, could you kind of break down the the basic steps that it goes through to turn uh, spoken language in one in one language into another?
2: Uh, perhaps the easiest way for me to do it uh, to explain this uh, is to just uh, talk you through the. The flow of how the data goes through, and being a technologist, it makes sense to me, but I'm happy to answer questions after that, right? So what we do is we capture the audio of a speaker, and the the important thing is to capture this in a clean fashion. So we capture it through uh, a mobile device today it's, it's we are supported uh, we we run on Android and iOS devices. So we capture the audio. And then we send the audio into the cloud, our proprietary cloud, where we then do the speech recognition (ASR), and then we do the translation as well in that cloud. And what people, uh, what attendees can do is they get a very secure code for each session that Wordly is being uh, uh, set up for. They can join these each of these sessions and they receive the translated text in whichever language they prefer. And then we convert that into audio for them to listen as well. And all of this is encrypted.
3: Yeah, so, so by ASR, you're meaning automated speech recognition, which is a technology that takes spoken text and turns it into written text. Is that is that correct?
2: That is correct. Okay. Basically, what it does is it takes words and it, it, it breaks it into phonemes. Mm-hmm. And then AI, the way it does is that it it recognizes phonemes and it understands, it It comes up with the best probable, highest probability of what that word should mean in that language.
1: It's extremely fascinating. I've looked into that uh, a little bit, but the whole sort of way this works and the, how it splits up the the waveform basically into different chunks and tries to put them together is super fascinating.
3: Yeah, it is, it is fascinating. And it's it's fascinating to compare that with the little bits that we know about interpreter cognition as well, but I'm not going to go into that yet. I'll come to that later. <laughs> Maybe just a little bit. <laughs> well, OK. Um, one, of the, one of the things that has fascinated me about machine interpreting is that the underlying model that you've described, has a label. So in interpreting research, we call it the conduit model. And it's interesting because the more interpreting research has gone on, the further away from the conduit model researchers have gone, uh, especially it started off in interpreting in say medical settings or in court settings even. And actually as time has gone on, we've realized that the conduit model explains some things really well but doesn't explain things like why interpreters choose this word over that one, or why they choose this phrasing over that one, or why they how they manage to self-correct. And so it's fascinating to see machine interpreting using a model of interpreting, which has really been questioned and challenged since the 1990s in research, um, and to see what the... The results are of using the conduit model to do machine interpreting versus the model that most interpreters are trained in now, which is called the triad model, which is more about cooperation and understanding what's going on in the situation rather than concentrating on what did that person just say. Um, And it is fascinating to see the difference in how the tech world understands interpreting versus how the interpreting research world understands interpreting. This might be very
1: out there, but is it fair to say that the conduit model is a bit like the cascade model? Like the the standard or well, the old model of ASR, if you will. Yes.
3: Uh, pr- well, it's.
1: Just in, in the way that it's chronological, it, I guess, or sort of in out
3: pr- pr- Kind of. It's more like the best analog to the conduit model is the ASR to machine translation to spit the audio out at the end. That is classic. That is the conduit model in a nutshell. So it was the interpreter hears, the process, they see. Um, and it was always the only thing the conduct model ever dealt with was the language, and so there have been lots of studies since the 1970s on how do interpreters chunk, how do interpreters turn phonemes into words, how do interpreters turn words into sentences how do they know when a sentence is finished and, and so on and so forth and i believe in german that's very difficult because sentences in german never end i <laughs> no idea what you're talking about <laughs> but, uh, 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 but this is it's one of the things and especially actually german's been a really useful way of studying that because with it being verb final so often and negation final negation final yes n- negation final as well so this is where the, the conclusion that researchers have come to since the 90s is that interpreters are using their social awareness and their world knowledge as much as they are the, the language that they're hearing. And it, it's interesting because when you gave us a demo of Wordly before this, my brain was going, oh, I can see the conduct model working. You can actually trace issues of, oh, it's that word because that's the right conduit model word, but an interpreter would never choose that word because we would have context. Um, And it's just fascinating to see the different models working. Um, I wonder, I might come to this conclusion at the end, but I wonder if the two models mean that the two solutions are good for different things.
2: I tend to agree that there are uh, areas where machine interpretation exist and there are areas where human interpreters will exist. When I look at the big picture, this is how I see it in the long term, perhaps short term is very different, but if you look at any piece of conversation, you can break them down into two uh, areas. One is the emotional content of that speech. And the second is the information context of that speech. And we believe that today or for the long term, the information content machine learning is ready for this. However, the emotional content cannot be captured as easily because just the way that people behave, it's so varied depending on region, depending on personality, what kind of emotion they bring into their speech. Even their tonality, the way they speak, is very different from person to person. And it's very hard for AI to capture that in a large platform. So I think that's where there's a limitation today.
3: Does your system capture intonation data as well? Because I know that was a limitation of a lot of systems is that they would capture word level data, but they wouldn't capture things like emphasis or... Kind of intonation switch—he's the humans should into and go, or he's being ironic. He's being, she's being sarcastic, or she's trying to be funny. <laughs> I think, I think there's a way to
2: do it. We're not there yet. Uh, that is not too far off, in my sense. But sarcasm is going to be really hard uh because uh, sarcasm, <laughs> again, that depends from person to person, right? I think this is this is this will be the biggest challenge. You can do it on a personal basis, but. Doing it on a broad uh, scale is going to be very challenging. Uh, the hard part is you may get it 60% right, 70% right, but for for general acceptance in the market, you have to have it 90 95% right. And margin for error there is much lower than what people think.
1: I just have a quick follow-up question Uh, following up on what Jonathan just said on the you you can see the machine think or change things according to how the sentence develops. Um, As far as I can tell, a lot of machine translation systems or speech translation systems uh, actually show you the transcription result in the original language. And Wordly, if I remember correctly, doesn't do that. Was there any... Why did you decide not to do that? I, I suppose the others do it for transparency or I, I don't know why why did you decide to go a different uh, route i think
2: our way of doing this thing was to make sure that from a human machine human behavioral model uh, people don't have time to look at two transcripts and follow the conversation at the same time and when you look at our product it's meant for continuous conversation uh, and the way we have designed our product is to make sure that you can have a continuous conversation without having an, inter- like if you had an interpreter in, in between who is doing uh, sequential interpretation, right? Then I have to speak a sentence, wait, and then let the other person speak. What we're doing is to make sure that there's a seamless interaction between people. Now, when you do that, there's no point in showing two languages to the other person. However, what we do is when I'm speaking, let's say I'm I'm using wordly and I'm speaking, I can see what I am speaking as a transcription. And what that allows me to do is that when I see something that is transcribed that is incorrect, then I can I can almost predict for a hundred percent that the translation is going to be incorrect. It's
1: trouble ahead. And yeah. so
2: I so, so so I can I can I can repeat what I said. So the translation comes out correctly.
4: Plus uh, what you were saying as well with um, not showing uh, both, you know, the original and the translation for, let's say, the person who receives it, I would say that, yes, for us analysts, maybe that's interesting. If I can see English and German or for uh, interpreters, but let's say if, it's, if I'm attending a conference that is in, I don't know, uh, Swahili, it's not of no use to me to see the script. You know, I mean, it might be interesting just to see what kind of words come come up in that language, but it's not like I can do a comparison anyway, and then I just want to understand what's being said, right?
3: Yeah. So. It's one of the, the bigger things with interpreting that we don't think about enough is the fact that if interpreters are being called or machine interpreting is being used, it's because people don't understand one of the languages. Yeah, exactly. And so No, but, but this is a fundamental thing, and it is one that we forget so easily, is that the there's different, two things. One, there's a relation of trust, of implicit trust that we should never take for granted. And two, without some kind of solution, there isn't really a lot. There's physical communication, which kind of happens. But, you know, the real communication isn't going to take place unless there's some solution there. And I think once we understand that, we can understand things like quality judgments. We can understand why some clients, even for a big conference, would say, we just want machine interpreting. Um, rather than saying, you know, how horrible you are, it's like, well, put yourself in their shoes and look at the problem that they've got. And actually, that solution might make sense for some conferences. For others, it definitely won't. Um, there are certain meetings where I imagine that they would... In fact, I've been in meetings where they call human interpreters because it's a prestige thing. So, you know, it's
2: horses for courses. I, I totally agree. I think that 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 human... Uh, behavior, again, going back to human behavior, this prestigious, you know, there are people that like the entourage for the high level meetings. They like to go with their interpreters and that also allows them to break the conversation and discuss internally and gives them a thought process. We don't, we believe that that level of dynamics will exist and continue to exist in the future because that's a mode of business operation. In general, uh, I think there are more meetings that are happening today that would need informational interpretation. And I think that's where machine interpretation is going to perhaps take a, a bigger uh, it may not eat up the revenue, but it may it'll definitely may have some penetration in in those areas.
1: Well, that's exactly the question, right? what What's the overlap and how's it going to play out? Yeah, that's the interesting. That we don't know yet. Yeah.
3: Sounds a lot like so. When I started, I first translated before I interpreted, and I got a few documents that I translated and they were labeled for information only. I don't know if anyone else has come across stuff like that. Traduction de courtoisie. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, seriously. Is for information only, or the other one which we dealt with in class and I had one and it was annoying was translation for the file? But that kind of stuff, translation for the file, interpreting that's just, you need to know this, so long as it's not information that's going to get anyone killed if it goes wrong, it makes sense to have a machine. Um, where it's you know life or death, profit or loss, where there's some danger in error, then I think people will probably go for humans. But this is, again, a whole conversation to have is, um, and we didn't even have this in the notes, selection. Traditionally, conference interpreters have, well, interpreters in general have been quite scared and seen machine interpreting as a rival. Um, and some of the PR from the speech translation community hasn't been encouraging in that regard. There's been a lot of talk of replacing interpreters. Of you know, in five years, there'll be no more humans left. Is there anything you would want to say to that controversy? What? Um, would you want to calm interpreters down? Would you want to get us anxious to make us don't know, interpret better? What would your input to that controversy be? No
1: pressure, right?
3: <laughs> well,
2: let me put it this way. I empathize with their concern. Uh, but I believe that the market is really big for both to coexist. And here's what I, my research has said, uh, has shown. Interpreters are very hard to come by. Just by nature of the business... You know, if I, if I am in middle America and I need a good interpreter in a language, I need to fly them in from either the East Coast or the West Coast or, you know, they're just hard to find. I mean, that's the nature of the business. The industry by itself, interpretation industry is fragmented. And if you don't have a platform to unfragment this, it is going to be very difficult. And what that will lead to at the end of the day is that more and more people will not use interpreters, which we actually see only 15% of the meetings that actually need translation are using interpreters. There's a long tail where they don't use it. They just get by with you know, body language and or repeat meetings or whatever it is. It just affects productivity. That's the biggest worry, right, is that The long tail languages, if you want to preserve them in the long run, you need to, otherwise the dominant languages will just take up. And then people's identity will be lost in these participation. And that is a bigger picture that people have to look at than just look at it as interpretation as, um, I don't want to trivialize it, but not just look at uh, interpretation as a source of income, but how do we look at the bigger picture and preserve languages? I think that is the bigger picture one has to look at.
4: And uh, I would add to that that um, in addition to preserving languages, uh, in in the end, all about providing language access. And like you said already that in some scenarios or in some locations, this can be extremely challenging or next to impossible. I also think that there's definitely um, scenarios where yeah, people right now, they won't get interpreters either because they can't or they can't afford it. So uh, something like uh, machine interpreting can actually, I think also like open up the market even further. It's already a big market. Uh, with lots that's left unfilled, and it might open up even more fields for interpreting and for language access, um, because it's possible this way.
0: That's what I was thinking, too. I'm thinking a lot of those meetings that can be then interpreted with machine interpreting, if more people see it more of the time, it could also help raise awareness just generally for the need and for the, the demand that is out there in the meetings, which would then in turn also potentially benefit
3: human interpreters. This is a, a case that I've been making and m- more so more recently, um, there was a video that I brought out about four months ago called No Mr. Robot, You Can't Have My Job, but You Can Help Me Do It Better. <laughs> um, it, it, yeah. it did fairly well. It got a couple of hundred views. And the interesting thing about that is people all latched on to the, you can't have my job, but and no one latched onto the but you can help me do mine better bit. One of the use cases for machine interpreting, which I think has been under explored and undervalued, is to use the same technology that underlies machine interpreting and use it to make human interpreting more accurate by doing things like speeding up terminology searches. So when an interpreter is working simultaneously, you know, we work in teams of two or three if you're fancy. And um, there's often an interpreter doing the terminology searches for the one who's active, because when you're active, you don't have the time off often be able to get a term. And there's no reason why this technology couldn't be repurposed to say, well, that, that term I recognize isn't in the top 10,000 words in English. I'll check your terminology database, and if not, I'll check the ones that I know you search. And that's every IT person that I've talked to said, yeah, the technology exists to do that. And my response has been, well, we need it because that's the kind of thing where you can get the two sides working together and benefiting each other and i'm sure from the data of you know the terms that interpreters look up most often or how interpreters use machine interpreting that can improve machine interpreting output too especially on the language recognition side and there's scope yes there's scope for rivalry we should never deny that but there's also scope for cooperation like i said i agree
2: with you i think they they both need to coexist and i mean What you said is quite accurate is that we can feed off of each other, right? Human interpretation and machine interpretation. The more human interpreters use machine interpretation to improve their uh, quality uh, or their delivery of interpretation, it only speeds up their interpretation and it reduces the cognitive load on them. And what that can help on the... AI side of this equation is their inputs can actually make the the, pro, the algorithms much better and provide better outputs or better uh, translation uh, quality uh, that can improve machine translation. So I think that they can help each other out uh, and at some point uh, I just don't see the scaling for human interpreters being uh, as many, uh, gi- just given the nature, I just think that this human interpreters don't scale to the global requirements that uh, where interpretation is needed today.
1: But that's also kind of related to specific languages, or would you would you say that's something that's a trend across the board, or is that something that that you see spe- specific to certain languages or language groups, maybe the scalability and availability. Uh, of
2: course, the long the availability of interpreters for long tail languages are fewer and fewer, um, and that's why even now today conferences they probably do translation for one or two languages, not just the expense, but they just are not able to get the interpreters for the long tail languages. Um, I think that over time the long tail languages uh, there's not enough data today for the long tail languages to have presence, both in human interpreters, as well as machine interpretation today.
1: But I think it'll catch up soon. Yeah. And I think just following up on that, uh, the the languages that you have available, I suppose, are also constrained by the availability of training data and uh, material to to feed the algorithm, as it were.
2: Absolutely. I mean, that's by nature of uh, the quality of uh, machine learning—we we just need more data sets to be able to do it. Um, the second thing that we are also focus on, right now at least, being an early stage company, is we focus more on business case. It's easier for us. We can uh, we can get the data for long tail languages, but it's all a return on investment and where we put effort and how we prioritize it.
3: Yeah, I mean, what differentiates what you're doing from the solutions offered by, say, Google or Waverly Labs or the other people in the same space?
2: Yeah, so uh, one of the key things that we do is, uh, and as you saw in the demo earlier, is we do what we call the continuous translation. Number one, I can speak, I can continue speaking, and it translates in real time. What we do also is that we translate from one language to multiple languages. We don't require special hardware. You don't need a special headset or a special uh, earpiece to listen to the translation. Your mobile device is good enough. Your computer is good enough. We make it super easy. You don't have to be in the same physical location. You can be virtual. And uh, I think, you know, and our quality uh, at the end of the day, we have to say is, quite uh, reasonable, or uh, the delivery, depending on the language language pairs that we use, is fairly good.
0: No, I just had a very practical question because on your website, it says that you're offering it for, among other things, global meetings, conferences, and briefing centers. And then in the demo that we saw, it was obviously just you talking. So it was basically all just continuous um, chat bubbles, if you will, um, with your text. So if you were to be in a meeting and let's say you and I have a conversation with the view, then adapt or because you're doing this continuous and seamless stream of, of speech, if you will, like, does it all show up just, you know, as as one kind of blob of speech bubbles? Or do you do like literally like a chat view where like I say something and then you say something and it, and it shows?
2: So what I showed you earlier today uh, was uh, one speaker and many listeners. So it's a one-to-many mode. And we do support the many-to-many as well. So if you and I are speaking, if you had the application on your side and I had the application, so what you would see on the screen is it would show Lakshman, it would put a small initial bubble and say this is what I spoke, and then it would say Alex spoke this. And so you know we'd have the different breakdown by the speaker who spoke and with with a small initial next to that. But if I had to see it, I will see only what is being said in my language that I choose. Whereas if you had to, uh, if let's say you're listening in German, then you would see everything in German and be able to hear everything in German.
3: Does it label changes of speaker? So if it's just continuously doing the same language, does it say, you know, this speaker said this, this speaker said that?
2: That is correct. We allow we we do a speaker breakdown on that. So yeah.
3: did, did they then. So if you've got a standard conference setup where you know you could have three speakers who all speak using the same microphone, um, say you have three speakers back to back who speak three different languages. Does it auto detect language or does it have to manually change? Okay, this is so and so. He's speaking Hindi. Yeah,
2: yeah. So today, for fa- we, we have the technology to do auto detect. But today, what we do is we do it manually. Uh, that's what we have in the in the market uh, product today. That we we they have to switch it manually.
3: Okay, and then would you manually would someone manually label? You know, this is a new speaker, but they're using the same. You know, this is Bob, this is Sarah, this is Phil.
2: Typically, in the conference, what we do is there are multiple outputs to the to the microphone channels. So we speak. To, we use different channels for different speakers, ah, and so okay. it's automatically labeled. <laughs>
3: Yeah, all right. Okay, because one of the things that you often have at conferences is you'll get you know speaker after speaker on the same podium. Um, and interpreters have have tricks of the trade that we use to make sure that someone's... Ch- well, the, I mean, the nightmare for us, I wouldn't say nightmares, it's actually quite fun, is when you get an open forum or a QA session or you get a, a panel session. So I, ha- I had one uh, a couple of years ago. I was interpreting from the Scottish Parliament And it was the Consul General of France, uh, the French Consul General to Scotland, was interviewing a very famous French-speaking musician. And they're doing the interview entirely in French, and I'm interpreting entirely in English. And I had to very quickly come up with a solution so that people knew who said what and when. Um, And now, that's the thing. As a professional, I would expect, you know, I'm a consultant interpreter, so if I've got interpreters in my team, I would know that they would know how to cope because I would expect I, I would you know I would only get the people who I, who would know how to cope. But I'd imagine with machine interpreting, you would maybe have to pre-label the mics, or you would have to have a very good person sitting going this person, that person, this person, that person
0: right but that's why i asked that question as well and and as lakshman was saying if if you and i have the conversation or if multiple microphones are being used on stage you can simply pre-label that or the device tells you anyways and that's also the that's why i asked that question as well because you know if you're having a conversation or if you're having an interview or a panel discussion you need to as a human interpreter you need to use those tricks of the trade to make sure that people can differentiate whereas with machine interpretation at least if you look at the transcript you can simply label them and it's it's you know, dead easy.
2: Yeah, and which is what we do, right? I mean, that the hard part is labeling the Q and A part, and that that is that is hard. But we we typically call that as a guest, right? And which is what perhaps uh, in, human interpreters do is they say audience. Uh, this is the audience. That's uh, question from the audience, and just uh,
3: don't label the person. We, we have to keep some tricks up our sleeve. <laughs> 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 That's
0: right. But just a quick follow-up question on that, um, because I'm guessing not everybody always follows the transcript. Some people, when they're at a conference, they also just want to listen to the the speech synthesis. So if, I don't know, you and Jonathan and Sarah, you guys, the three of you are in a panel discussion, and I'm not following the transcript, is there a change of voice? Because I saw in the demo, you could also choose between three different voices.
2: We have choice for different languages and different voices. So you can pick different voices. You can, you can uh, uh, and different languages come out with different voices. So you can definitely tell if you're listening to people, then if you, let's say I'm listening in Hindi and it'll come out uh, Of course, it'll come out in one voice, but you can, um, uh, but it'll be labeled as different voices. Yeah, I I I see your point. That's a that's a good idea for us to change. (laughs) I like that. Sorry,
3: I like that. I like that. That's a good idea for us to implement. That's awesome. But but, I mean, this is this is the thing as well. So where I would quite happily turn to machine interpreting is. I wrote once about the, the kind of people that you meet at a conference, and all the interpreters in this room are going to nod when I say this. When you get when the chair of the session says, "Does anyone have any questions?" and there's a rambler in the audience with a typewritten script that doesn't have any questions on it that no one actually needs to understand because he's. It's it, more it's, of a. It's comment. always a man. It's always always a man. I don't know why <laughs> it's always a man. They always have. They always have size eight. A- typed script and just as you think they're finished they hold the papers up and what they do they do that they tap the papers on the table then you turn them around and start from the back and in those situations when they're just speaking for the sake of speaking it'd be nice to have a button on the console that goes machine can take that one (laughs) (laughs) i i think the 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 hard part
2: or the similarities between machine translation and and human translation interpreters is very similar, right? In this part, at least. So if the speaker is unintelligible, a human interpreter finds it hard to translate. And the same is true for machines as well. If they can't understand, if the machine can't understand what the speaker is saying, it's just going to be that much harder for us to recognize as well. And we we fail in this, yeah, garbage yep. and garbage. out.
3: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That, that, does rem- that does remind me I launched the challenge which no machine interpreting company has ever taken me up on and that is to pick machine interpreting live against remote human interpreters and human interpreters in the room and to do a blind, a double blind test where the audience don't, well it would be single blind really, the audience don't know which is which, but they're free to just switch between them on specially rigged up where they could use them on mobile phones right now, the text there that they could just do on a mobile phone. So every channel is is unlabeled. And the, the humans just scroll through and they just get asked afterwards what they thought. But of course, if you're going to do that, you have to make it as like a real conference as possible. And I am a crazy Glaswegian. So I, I, I might get <laughs> some, some crazy Glaswegian there. You're going to invite your uh, fishermen from Aberdeen <laughs> or Inverness or whatever else. So, so L- Lakshman doesn't know their story. Um, I've done a few deep fisheries policy meetings. And the second, first or second one I did, the chair, who was a civil, a very senior civil servant in the Scottish government, came up to me and said, "Are you two Scots?" And because there were two of us, because we we're proper professionals, and I was like, "Yeah, we're, we're both Scots." He said, "Great, we've got Aberdonian fishermen here, and I don't understand a word they're saying. Can I listen to the French instead?" <laughs> <laughs> and the for for. Scots. I mean there was two Scots in the booths that day. We were completely fine with it. And and my booth mate even managed to do a nice little uh interpret interpreting from Gaelic because the guy decided to open the meeting in Gaelic. Thanks. Um and we just went with it and it was fine. But one fisherman at one point leant back in his chair away from the microphone and said, I didn't know want to come across like neat, but what's that? <laughs> and we were we, we interpreted it no problem, but you could see all the all the English speaking delegates going. What was that? Yeah, but, uh, but just
1: at the risk of giving you more free ideas, um, I'm wondering. <laughs> I'm wondering if you're also looking in in other sort of uh, related services, I guess, because there's so much attention on machine translation, oftentimes that this the other services or, or things that NLP can do get sort of overlooked, like, you know, just transcription, just monolingual transcription, and uh, I don't know, ex- uh, emotion extraction or extracting to-do items, stuff like that. Is is that something you're looking at, or is that uh, still too far away or maybe not interesting for you?
2: No. Uh, oh, definitely. I mean, the adding additional information into interpretation just adds value, right? I mean, that uh, it is... It is something that we have looked at so the first part of it is how do you extract or do a summary and how do you extract keywords and then with those keywords how do you actually provide um, uh, you know some sentiment and people have talked a lot about sentiment analysis but the, the key to getting the right sentiment is to have context behind the conversation and then use that context to then derive the sentiment. And since we would have the data in different languages, it's easy for us to do something like this. So these are natural paths for us as a future to be able to like provide to companies. So yeah, uh, definitely in our roadmap.
4: To uh, com- go into something a little different again there, or um, actually pick up something from a little earlier, uh, Lakshman, you were saying that with AI and technology, um, you can only really be successful once you have, um, once the quality is at something like 99%, right? Um, so it's just, uh, I've I've spent a bit of time at NIMSI as well, of course, as you know, um, looking into machine interpreting, and we spend as a company a lot of time on um, AI um you know, and all the technologies in our industry that come with that. And a a question popped up there for me as well. It's like, what do we want from AI in the end? And what are our expectations that we have towards AI and towards uh, humans? Because we always make that comparison, of course, uh, AI and humans. And whereas um, for humans, we say, well, it's only human to make mistakes, right? But for AI, you don't have that. People don't make that excuse. It's more like it has to be perfect or it doesn't work. (laughs) <laughs> it's like there's very little leeway, I think, that we're giving. There's people. some bias
2: there, huh? Yeah. There's, there's, there is some bias there. So uh, there are a few errors that uh, machines do. Or I mean, let's put it this way. Um, neither of uh, the interpretation schemes are 100% accurate. Uh, humans are not 100% accurate. Machines are not 100% accurate. Uh, so Today, what machines do, and I'm not so much in the interpreter space, so I want uh, you guys are more experts on these, and I can ask some questions on that. But the the machines, the, the biggest error is all driven by the human speaker. So let me put it this way. If I am speaking generally, people speak in phrases. People don't speak in complete sentences. Now, when they keep, when they speak in complete sentences, the recognition and the machine translation works really well. Now, when they speak in phrases, it works well as well. Now, if they speak grammatically incorrect sentences, then machine translation has a big problem. Machine translate, and then if I speak something and then I change my Sentence mid mid sentence. I I correct myself. Human interpreters do really well in that area. We just don't do so well. And the biggest thing for human, for machine interpretation is proper proper names, right? So people are people's names are very hard to come by. I mean, and people have names like summer and winter that have meanings and so on. So you know that gets literally translated. And over time, I think that's where we are today. I think some of these can change over time and we can add glossaries and we can bias the output to, for it to be a noun versus you know something else and not translate it. So there are things that we can do, some magic on the back end, but those are areas that are the similarities and the differences between human interpretation. But the question I have for all of you is, how do you measure quality of human interpreters today? You know, some are good, some are not good, and then how can we then equate that to machine interpretation? Not by just saying machine interpretation
3: is not acceptable. Please stop stumbling into stuff. Doing <sighs> research, John.
4: Please. Really good question.
3: We'll, we'll cut you off, Jonathan. Okay, it's I fine. Actually, say first because I am going to rant. I was just so going yes. to say that. Yes.
4: Uh, Actually, I was just um, uh, recently asked by um, Renato, our CEO at NMZ, also, um, like, how do you, you know, how do people get tested for interpreting or how do you check interpreting quality and I think it was also something I forgot the context, but with um, how you can do it fairly quickly or something, or who checks interpreters on the on the market? How do you check their quality output? And it's like you you kind of don't, you know. And I was saying that at institutions there's the um, head of booth who checks in maybe with the interpreters every now and again and all that or listens in, and then you just have your uh, qualification at the beginning, uh, and where lots of people check. Um, you know, one just listens to the output, and one, uh, the others listen to both, and all this kind of stuff. But even there, it's still, of course, very subjective. Even though it might be very high level, it's still also subjective. And that's why I think, in in general, this is um, uh, something we talk about a lot at NIMSY when it comes to quality of both interpreting or translation. There is no definite quality standard, and yeah, that, and it doesn't true. exist. You know, and everyone keeps saying. Um, Renato keeps saying, like, quality doesn't matter because everyone says they have the best quality. It's not that it actually doesn't matter, but it's not a differentiator, right? Because um, if you ask in a room, uh, how do you, you know, who here provides the best quality, everyone's going to raise their hand.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So then if if we say we are the best uh, interpreter, how do you then take machine interpretation and say, Machine interpretation is just, I mean, I can claim today that we have best interpretation quality. Does that, you know, how do we measure it?
3: Right. I, I will give you a quick, and I have promised Alex D. I will be quicker, otherwise, he will edit me out in post. Um, okay, <laughs> two things the standard quality measurements for machine translations. So I can't remember what they've got, Meteor and the Blue Score. They are highly. Pro- um, Andy Wei, who's a machine translation expert, will explain very clearly why they don't. They're highly problematic. Um, my, there has been lots of research on quality and in interpreting the. Yes. De- basically, the, the best we can get to at the moment is quality isn't is almost entirely to do with context. So instead of talking about quality, I talk about in both of my books. I talk about adding value. And I asked the question, and this is a good question to ask both for machine interpreting and for human interpreting. Mm-hmm. what difference did interpreting make that wouldn't have happened if interpreting wasn't there and then you ask, then the next question is what risks were there that were either made worse or were mitigated by the interpreting? That's a new one that I've been working on. so for example, quality in medical interpreting. Uh, at its base level is the patient didn't die unnecessarily and they got the right treatment. That's what quality comes down to. Quality, in quality. if you've got a really artistic speaker, comes down to did the audience experience it as well as the source language audience. So it, it's a really dangerous area to get into but I would counsel anyone doing machine interpreting or automatic speech translation, as I'm now calling it because of Conduct Model, I would counsel anyone in that space to either talk to guys like Andy Wei who are creating new machine translation quality measurements or to very be very careful about how they use the Q word and stay away from quality and talk about use cases. I would rather we talk to use cases than quality, but I have devised a quality test that we can try out which is they put them against each other. No, no,
2: well said. I I mean, that's that's exactly what our platform is as well, is, you know, at the end of the day, do we add value? And if we did not have interpretation, do people uh, walk away from having understood nothing or with the interpretation, did they walk away having understood something? And is there a net gain? Uh, And I think, actually, I think even in medical use cases, machine interpretation is actually perhaps relevant because most doctor-patient interactions, doctors typically ask the same question five to ten different ways to make sure that they are actually coming to the right conclusion. If they say you, if you go and say, I have a headache, they ask, is it your left side oh, you know, when I touch here, does it pay? You know, so they ask the question 10 different ways to like make sure that the answer is correct or their conclusions are uh, what they think it is. And the same can happen with machine interpretation is they're already trained to do something like that. Um, Of course, we don't want to get into a case where they're going into the surgery room or asking, "Is it right leg that I need to take off?" And, you know, right eye, left eye, when they're doing surgery. But in the in there are areas of the medical profession where machine interpretation will work, and there are perhaps areas where we do need human interpreters.
0: So I have a follow-up question on what you just said, because you said the doctors usually have five to ten different ways of asking a question. And I think this harkens back to something I forgot who said it earlier, but um I think it was about the the I think it was actually you, Lakshman, who said about the names, you know, summer and winter. And I know, for example, for a lot of the dictation software out there, like Dragon or whatever have you, you can prime it. So you can actually say, okay, we're gonna be doing a dictation on Automotive engines, here are the main words that you need to know. And then you type it into the program and you basically prime the software. Is that something that you guys can do as well or that you're doing already? So if you're having a, a meeting on, I don't know, who, who knows whatever, um, on my new iPad, like can you prime it on my on my iPad terminology?
2: So, yeah, so the, the short answer is yes. The long answer is... Uh, <coughs> Uh, one of the things we've done is we have built, uh, our models are built on very big knowledge base. So broad base. Uh, So what we then typically ask is that if you have domain-specific acronyms, uh, especially many companies now have acronyms (laughs) for different things. We know. (laughs) Um, Yes, and acronyms are very hard to Uh, recognize Uh, so we we ask for acronyms we ask for uh, names uh, that are unique uh, such as wordly you know corporate names that are atlassian or you know that are not in the dictionary product names that come up and we ask for all of that and we actually create a special dictionary for that particular session and then we can build it for that particular domain and company. We can continue to build on that for them. So that's how we do it uh, uh, for domain specific or
0: company specific requirement. That makes a ton of sense. We do the same thing.
3: Yeah, I, I <laughs> yeah. totally want. I totally want to see the machine interpreting challenge with, with Wordly now. <laughs>
4: Well, actually, Jonathan, I was going to add uh, since you were saying that you know you wouldn't tell participants um, what voice belongs to which uh, scenario, but I think for now, at least uh, with the machine interpreting uh, solutions, they are mostly still very synthetic voices. Like you can understand them, but you would. I mean, but it doesn't mean the solution doesn't work, you know. Yeah. So I well, think well,
3: it, there's been going back to quality. There has been a, quite a bit of research on voice quality and interpreting, um, and my argument always is you take the situation as is and you give it a try as is and and I think there are some cases I mean I was talking to people recently about kind of emergency service interpreting or you know tourists going to a library in a foreign country there are situations where you know if an ambulance uh, someone if a paramedic needs to get a patient's name and work out where it's sore we use whatever solution lets them do triage and then when they're actually getting treated you get you know you get the right solution for the time. Um, so yeah, I I'm, I would like to test things as is because I know technologists well enough that the more feedback that you get and the more that you can see it out in the wild and people reacting to it, the more you can make a difference. And also the more humans, human interpreters can adjust. I think we've given human interpreters far too easy a ride for far too long. And chapters 10 to 13 of my book are, are a well-deserved um poke and i think if human interpreters don't get a well-deserved poke with what machine interpret speech translation can do then i think they deserve to get in trouble if we take it as okay this is this thing this is what it can do here's how we need to differentiate ourselves if we react the right way it could be good for everyone if we react the wrong way it's our own dumb fault jonathan you should send
2: me a link to your book after this session i'm curious to read it now
3: just you, you have to promise me that you you don't um get annoyed for my uh, simplification of uh, how compute how the computer models work because i to... <laughs> oh, I I I love simplicity
2: that is perfect i love simplicity
3: <laughs> yeah. i i I drew, <laughs> I drew a diagram i drew a diagram <laughs> <laughs> oh that was you who drew it <laughs> All, all, I believe all of, yes, all of the diagrams are hard, are hand-drawn because copyright permissions are hard. <laughs> go, in, go there. Uh,
2: I want to uh, talk about some of, one of the things that you brought up earlier, Jonathan. So we did have a conference where there was a human interpreter for certain languages and they use Wordly as well. And I'm not going to tell you which which conference this was, or it was. A, but it was a big conference. There were a lot of people attending. Um, then, what they did during that session was something that was very revealing to us. Number one is uh, the the organizers were able to audit us in real time and they were able to audit the quality in different languages they were asking hey how is this interpretation coming what's how's it good the second thing is that for the buyer who's buying or purchasing the interpretation they're able to see real time how many people are actually using our product in real time in what languages that they're using and all of so the openness and the ability to audit in real time, is quite unique with machine interpretation. With uh, human interpretation, they didn't seem to be able to tell how many people actually use the headsets, or how many are actually currently using it in real time, or did they just take it, or how many people did not take it, and you know, it was just they were not able to provide the metrics. Th- these real are metrics
3: time. that on the IR systems you can't get, but on the newer, um, so there is, now, there, there is now interpreting into delivering the human interpreting into mobile apps. There's no reason why the metrics shouldn't be available there. And I think this, again, is, is a kind of poke for human interpreters is that we are not used to thinking metrics. And yet there are some very important metrics that we should be thinking about. Um, And so I was thinking, you know, a side-by-side comparison with the same language with all the metrics available and, you know, the technology to transcribe what the interpreters are saying, that's widely available. That, you know, that's on my phone. I can do that just about. It stumbles with Glaswegian sometimes. But, you know, as as well as an interpreter, I'm an independent researcher in interpreting studies. And the, the biggest issue with interpreting studies historically has been access to data. And so if we can find a way of getting access to data and getting these kind of metrics, I know researchers who would love to get their hands on that kind of data because it would make our lives a whole lot easier. But I say that as someone who's currently writing a paper um, questioning some of the issues with transcribing, and interpreting, but we'll get to that on another show. <laughs> <laughs>
4: And uh, Jonathan, actually, I wanted to come back to something uh, you said earlier. Um, you were mentioning this, uh, I think, really, really good example of, for example, uh, using uh, machine interpreting for that triage situation in emergency situations in, in hospitals, you know, just for that initial uh, bit of information. And then afterwards, maybe for the consultation, you get a human interpreter. In. And uh, Lakshman, this brings me to a question for you again about um, where you see like the main um use cases for machine interpreting and where for humans now in real life, I know you already made the difference between the emotional stuff and the information, but like, um, if we apply this, where do you see those like niches that maybe machine interpreting fills versus humans?
2: If you look at, uh, high density, uh, uh, cities, uh, especially for hospitals, I mean, I'll, I'll come back to the case of the hospitals, right. Um, And even with the COVID situation that we have currently going on today, uh, people are trying to find interpreters for patients and having to call an interpreter uh, to do even the initial triage or the initial consultation before going for further treatment, they're finding it uh, to be a very logistical challenge. Uh, the other, so the second part of it is, it is quite expensive. I mean, if you try and call through uh, to, in the US, you know, AT and offers you can call into an interpreter, language interpreter at any time, but it's quite expensive. There's a minimum fifteen minute or a thirty minute uh, requirement for any of that. So that we want to, we want to be able to make it easier for the patients as well as the doctors because their time is quite valuable i think there's a place where all of this can be done seamlessly with machine interpretation and given what uh, alex said just uh, alexander said just earlier if we keep terminologies to okay this is a pediatric environment this is a cardiac environment this is a pulmonology environment We can even narrow down the scope in that to provide a better uh, uh, ability to interpret. And the nice thing is, we do that may be an overkill because when you when you talk doctor-patient conversation, doctors are typically conversing with patients in a very simple language. They're not talking domain-specific language. They're talking general speak, and for that we don't need to go into a big corpus requirement.
4: Yeah, it's actually a really good point because I always think of, you know, these uh, for like medical uh, interpreting and also legal, of course, maybe for legal, it's more applicable, but like for for medical interpreting, it's like, oh my God, you know, the terminology that comes with this, the potential terminology anyway. But yes, it's very true that when that might be true for, you know, doctors talking to each other, but when it comes to the doctor-patient conversation, of course, they have to break it down for you, the layman. And uh, so it's fairly simple language then in comparison.
3: That is correct. I guess then the only difficulty that you have left, and it's one I watched, um, I coached some sign language interpreters who were working with the health service for a few months. And when they were doing their coaching and working with someone, they found that the cultural aspect becomes then more important than the terminology. So in some cultures, a male doctor examining a female patient just is not done and it's very difficult it's easy enough for a human interpreter to interrupt and explain it's much more difficult to set up a machine to realize oh hold on a minute i see a man i see a woman i know this culture that's not going to work that's it's again it's the difference between the text and the context
4: Right. But also, I mean, um, in, in that scenario, right, you're probably looking at the consultation, whereas we were, for example, um, the example we mentioned, it was more uh, the initial uh, diagnosis with a triage situation and you could bring in a human in later, even though I guess some of it could be done by machines later too in consultations.
2: But Jonathan, what, if you don't have access to an interpreter, what do you do in such situations? it's not it's not always the case while there's mandate for people to have interpreters in hospitals there have been situations where they don't uh, they don't interp- uh, they don't allow uh, i mean they're just not available the second part i'll give you a little bit of a personal exp- uh, experience there are cultural issues where the patient if they don't know the language they don't speak back to the doctor because they just don't know what is being said, right? And they may understand what the doctor is saying in English. And case in point is my mother, she speaks, she understands English. She doesn't speak English so well. But so when she has to explain to the doctor, she doesn't give the full explanation to the doctor because, you know, she she has the conversation, she listens, and she doesn't question back. But if she were speaking to the doctor in Tamil, which is her language, she would definitely be able to like, speak up and be able to question. And so if you had an interpreter available all the time, or if you had a machine interpreter, any, either a machine or a human, I think that conversation could be much uh, freer.
3: And I think that's the thing is it's challenging interpreting to look at access issues and to say, well, if there aren't interpreters nearby, a machine is going to be far better than nothing in every situation. Um, and I think that the, the sooner we admit that and the sooner we say, well, if we don't want to lose a percentage of medical interpreting, then training is our issue. It's not the the, the job of AI to say, oh, we'll hang back until you get enough interpreters trained. That's, that's not feasible.
4: No, and then you have the market element as well and the language access element. And I also, like I had an experience, I think I mentioned this before. Um, I was in the hospital in Spain when I was on vacation and had to go to the emergency room. And even though I speak some Spanish, it is not nearly good enough to go to the emergency room with that. When you already, I was really out of it as well. I was uh, way too dehydrated and I wish I would have had some... Uh, kind of a device, like a machine interpreting advice to at least help me along in that situation to get a little bit more of what the doctors were saying and vice versa, because there was nobody who would even speak English in the emergency room. I had to wait until like the next day for someone to speak English to me. So, uh, you know, I got by. They treated me really well. I cannot complain at all about the Spanish system. uh, It was fantastic, the the care they gave me, but I could not communicate with them. (laughs) and So it was a bit frightening in the beginning.
2: Yeah, this is this is true, especially in big cities, and you know, in Silicon Valley, where uh, uh, I mean, this is close to home for for me. But every region of the world is represented here, and getting access to interpreters for different languages from across the world, uh, for sure, it's easier to get the 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 most used used languages like Spanish and English, and perhaps French, but. The other languages are much harder to come by to find interpreters who are qualified to do medical interpretation.
4: Absolutely. I have a, an article coming out about this next week from NIMSI looking at the, the number of languages spoken in the US and how many languages um, are, you know, we looked at interpreter certifications and most certifying bodies only um, provide certifications for like 20 languages, or I think for translators, it's about 30 but there's like hundreds, 350-something languages being spoken. So there's a big gap there. Yeah.
3: (laughs) I I, I can see Alex D going, it's time to take the puppy to bed. (laughs)
4: Yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm just thinking it's – I think we've covered the the big question. I think we could certainly go on for for a lot longer. (laughs) uh, Maybe we can follow up on that. What I thought was interesting is that we're we're basically revisiting the topic that we had in our very first episode, which – yeah. Which uh, Lakshman, it was called Dictionary on Legs, and we were sort of riffing you know, on very you know, first what, episode. What the situation yep. back then was in machine translation, and I think this was when the Waverly Labs pilot uh, first came <laughs> yeah. out, I think, or was about to come out, or whatever. So yeah, it's been it's been really interesting to to come back to that. Also, you know, in light of recent developments, shall we say? <laughs> so um, it's it's probably not a good idea to to you know talk about what the future will bring because nobody saw coronavirus
4: coming.
1: (laughs) If we can can really say what's going to happen next, I don't know. Unless you want to share anything core you're you're working on.
2: Uh, Yeah, there's not much I can (laughs) say about it, unfortunately. That's what I
1: thought, yeah. (laughs) I
2: think we just have to wait and see. But uh, all I can say is that there's increased acceptance. Uh, People, uh, you will see and hear more and more about us. And we expect uh, we expect this to be a a good platform that will scale quite well and can coexist with human interpreters. I definitely see space for both to exist.
3: I think that's that's one of the key takeaways. Would you agree, Jonathan, as the person who literally wrote the book (laughs) on this? I would definitely agree. I, I would definitely agree, and I would make one appeal to interpreters please spend more time reading about the engineering side of uh, speech translation and learn to distrust the marketing side it's just standard critical thinking and to uh, and to companies who are making speech translation solutions if you're not if you're going to say to us that you're not trying to replace us i would beg you to say the same to journalists especially tech journalists because it's damaging to everyone in the short to medium term to start talking about machine interpreting taking over because then less interpreters will train, the availability issues will get worse, and we won't have enough interpre- enough human interpreters to deal with the work that needs human interpreters now until the machines get a lot better. So can we please, please call a truce? <laughs>
4: <laughs> but, uh, gentlemen, I think the one thing to keep in mind with that is, even though I agree as... Some of it is just also marketing, you know.
3: <laughs> There's marketing. I believe I wrote a chapter called "Machine Interpreting's Marvelous but Misleading Marketing."
1: Yeah, of right. Course. <laughs> I think it's not just marketing. It's it's. I mean, there are just some constraints. Is you know, you need to raise money, you need to pay the bill, you need to invest money in research. Yeah. So I think it's not quite that simple, really.
4: And it's not entirely false to say that this solution does replace uh, human interpreters for your event, technically, for example. Yeah, it's not false. It doesn't say we'll replace them forever for every scenario. It's
3: not false. But I I, I think the thing is, is yes, nuance marketing doesn't tend to land, we know. And uh, VC guys tend not to take nuance. We all know that. Um, But I think an understanding of saying you know, we are looking to provide a solution for or we can see a market gap in is a much more honest and a much more, to me, a much cleverer way of marketing than to say we're going to replace all interpreters. And then the very people who you might want to work with to improve your solution are just going to fold fold their arms and say, no. Yeah, that's a good
4: point. You don't want to alienate interpreters because, like we said earlier, we can all benefit from one another. And it would also be nice, I think, if interpreters weren't scared of this and would rather also
2: Yes. But that's historically true, right, is humans are always afraid of some machine or something else taking up their job. Uh, But I'll try to end with what Jonathan started, is that how can it help improve and help them do something better in their life if it's not interpreting maybe something else or improve their quality of interpretation itself? I think those are the ways for people to look at it, is not look at it as a threat, but... They look at it as something that can help them improve their
3: quality of life as well as other people's quality of life. So can, can, I, can I virtually shake hands on a truce? I'm, <laughs> I'm quite happy to do a virtual truce yeah. handshake. Uh, uh, there then you then go. i tell you what, one of these days, um, I'm doing a, a set of live interviews on my own YouTube channel. I will keep your email, uh, Lakshmi, and I will be inviting you for a live interview because I think it's time we had a truce and we did stuff together
2: all right super yeah yeah no absolutely i mean i think this is where the the technology and people meet and and that's yes and and definitely i think there could be a a good coexistence for for both
1: our situation is, is leading to a lot of changes of heart changes of mind when it comes to remote and distance interpreting already I mean simply out of necessity let's hope we can we can do this better next time when it comes to uh, machine interpreting Because there are there actually quite a few parallels and uh, you know in the recent situation you, you see where it got us as interpreters it's it's not it's not pretty sometimes.
0: Now that we learn the lessons.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's true. Better to go with the times, be curious, learn about it, you know, and see what it can do for you.